Romans chapter 6. Tonight our passage is verse 5, but we'll actually go back a little bit before that. Uh, as we spent last Wednesday considering the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it's been two weeks since we've studied this passage, and so please allow me to remind you of where we are. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 read like this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In chapter 5, Verses 12 through 21, Paul speaks of two headships. The first is the headship of Adam, who sinned. Paul's terminology is that he disobeyed. And death resulted. In 1 Corinthians, Paul adds, death resulted to all men, because we're all born associated with Adam. Then, then Paul speaks of a second headship, that second headship being Jesus Christ, who obeyed, and life resulted. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul teaches we are all associated with one or the other of those headships. You're not associated, you're not in position with both of them at any one time. We're all born associated with Adam. But then by grace through faith, we can be associated with Jesus Christ. When he gets to chapter uh, 5, verse 21, the last verse of that great theological passage, he says, as death reigned in sin, even so grace might reign through Jesus, through righteousness, to eternal life through the Lord through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he asked a rhetorical question to begin chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And in 5, 12 through 21, Paul's made the point that you can't out the grace of God. So some smart mouth in the congregation, he assumes, is going to raise his hand and say, well, okay, does that mean that we should sin more so that there'd be more grace? Because grace is a good thing. And we laugh about that. We would almost ridicule that. But there have been people in history that have taught that. Subsequent to Romans chapter 6. And it's sure that they were teaching it before. So that's why Romans chapter 6 verse 2 is so emphatic. But in 6 through 8 in general, we're introduced to a topic now of experiential sanctification or what is also known as progressive sanctification. Sanctification, I don't want to call on anybody. I know it's late. I know it's warm. So I won't do that, but follow along with me. Or else I will call on somebody. And since I only have one family member here today, I'll I'll do that. (laughs) Sanctification means in its most basic sense, to be set apart. We've been studying for almost a year a subject called, a theological subject called positional sanctification. By virtue of our justification, God imputing righteousness to us at the, moment of sanct- at the moment of salvation, we have been set apart. In a sense, we've been set apart from Adam, and now we're in Christ. We're not under the old headship anymore. We're under a new headship. 
In in Romans chapter 1 through 5, we understand that we are never more going to be under the penalty of sin. Once we've trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to give us eternal life, we are forever free from the penalty of sin. But yet sin still has power in our life. If you don't think so, you're probably not sane. Sin has power. Sin also has a presence. In Romans 6 through 8, Paul will outline how believers can be saved from the power of sin in our lives. You see, because positional sanctification, the Bible, in positional sanctification, the Bible teaches that we have already been saved and forever will be saved from the penalty of sin in our lives. Now, this is important because what happens is we hear these theologies and we store them in a part of our brain somewhere or our soul and we, some, somehow we don't let them interact with real-life questions. For example, a question that I'm asked more often than I ever thought I would be, frankly. Well, if all the sins were paid for on the cross, then we don't have a sin issue anymore, do we? There's no more sin issue. Sin is no longer an issue. Some of you have heard that. Some of you have written me about that. Well, if sin's no longer an issue, why do we have to confess our sins? Why does the Bible spend so much time talking about sins? For after all, we have been forever saved from the, oh, the penalty of sin. You see, that's what we've been saved from. But it doesn't mean that sin still doesn't exercise power right now. It doesn't mean that sin still doesn't offend the holiness of God. And there will be a sin problem until we're saved from the very presence of sin in the future. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That is not an issue anymore. We are being rescued presently from the power of sin. And someday in the future, that glorious day, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. So think, think with these theological categories and some of the questions that, that often come forth will be self-evident in their answers. Now... So in 6 through 8, Paul speaks about saving us from the power of sin. This section can be divided very nicely into three areas. Chapter 6, the believer and sin. And Paul teaches, in essence, that I can say no to sin. It is possible for me to not sin. That may be news to some of us, but it is possible for me not to do it. But when we get to Romans 7, we, we speak about the believer and the law... Paul is very frank. Though I can say no to sin, I seem experientially to fall into sin. And I might even add, all the time. So while I can say no to sin is the subject of chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, even though I can say no, I seem to experientially fall into sin. Now that gives us a dilemma, doesn't it? If I can say no, but it doesn't seem to happen as often as I would like, wouldn't you like to know how it's possible to say no more often? Wouldn't you? Okay. Well, that's Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is the believer and the Holy Spirit. So Paul sets the stage first. And in Romans chapter 8, he gives us one of the greatest theological dissertations on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in all of the scriptures. Romans chapter 8. Perhaps Galatians chapter 5 
would be up there as well, John chapter 16. But Romans chapter 8 is considered by most theologians to be the chapter in the Scriptures that tells us more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the Christian than any other single chapter in all of the New Testament. So what Romans chapter 8 will teach us is that I can say no to sin, but not in my own power, not by just turning my shoulder against the wind and gritting my teeth and saying, I'm not going to do that anymore, but only by means of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do what he says is theoretically possible in Romans chapter 6. So do you see the flow of these three great, great chapters? Now, some people start texts, they start sermon series at Romans chapter 6, and I know why they do. It's so tempting to do that, because this is the good stuff. It really is great stuff. The problem is, we'll never understand this great stuff if we didn't have an understanding of chapters 1 through 5. And especially, and particularly, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it in this order. So, the believer in sin is chapter 6. The believer in the law is chapter 7. The believer in the Holy Spirit is Romans chapter 8. I want to remind you that justification is an act of God whereby he declares the sinner righteous on the basis of God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's a definition that we've spent some time on in the first year of our study. Sanctification, though, and in this sense we're going to be using it as experiential sanctification, the maturing process for the believer. Sanctification is also a work of God the Holy Spirit whereby he progressively transforms the believer into the image of Christ on the basis of, watch, grace through faith. So both of them are by grace through faith. One is instantaneous. And once, once we pass through this initial stage, we are forever saved from the penalty of sin. But once we get into the sanctification issue, experiential sanctification or maturity in Christ, biblically, that's a process. There's a lot of discussion about this in Christian circles, and I hope that you don't just sit down with, with people and talk about football and baseball and basketball or, or architecture or whatever it is that you, you enjoy talking about. I hope sometimes theological discussions will come up. If they do, and you speak to your believing friends, some of your believing friends will say that there really isn't any difference between justification and experiential sanctification. They would say that if you are truly justified, it's a 100% for sure that you will be sanctified, that you will become mature. I just don't see that. I don't see it experientially, and I sure don't see it biblically. In fact, if it was a sure thing that I would obey the commands of God and thereby express my love to God, because that's how we do it, by the way, if, we, if I say that I love God, but I disobey Him, I don't love God. But if, if it is an automatic that I will become mature in Christ just because I have been justified, if that's an automatic, then why do I have to be exhorted to do it? You know what? I don't have to be exhorted to breathe 16 times a minute. I can pretty well do that without anybody telling me to. In fact, on... Two different occasions, I've almost drowned and really, no, nobody had to yell underneath the water, hey, listen, try to get up. <laughs> try, try to get up above the water because you really ought to breathe. No, I mean, that's something that happens automatically. So you don't have to command somebody 
to do something that is an automatic for them to do. It is silly. It's a waste of ink and paper. The reason we have biblical commands to advance to maturity, to be progressively sanctified, is because it's not an automatic. It's a choice. Just like you had a choice at salvation to either accept Christ or to reject Christ. To, to accept Christ's goodness and His work on our behalf or to try to be good enough to get to heaven on your own. You had that choice. Now, after that choice is made, you're forever saved and you have literally thousands of choices to make in the second phase, which is called experiential sanctification. So, most, but not all, theologians recognize the distinction in the concepts of justification and sanctification, but some, it's the relationship between the two that some have a problem with. Does sanctification automatically follow justification? Or is sanctification expected and normal for the believer, but not automatic? I would teach the latter. It is expected, it is normal, but it's not automatic. By the way, also when I say normal, I don't mean that it's common. I hope you see the difference. It is normal for a person to be healthy. It's also normal for our health to decline as we age because of the, the body of corruption that we live in. But health should be the norm. A lack of health is not the norm. It, it, but it is it's common, and there's many nurses and physicians that attend our church, I can tell you it is very common to be sick, but it's not the norm. It's not the norm for the believer to sin, although it's very common for the believer to sin. I hope you see the distinction in the two. Romans 6 through 8 will reveal that while progressive sanctification is normal and expected, it is far from automatic. That That I feel is one of my primary duties as a shepherd teacher in this congregation, is to exhort you is to, with every fiber of my being, to exhort you to be progressively sanctified. I might challenge you and ask you where you think you're going to be 50 billion years from now. I assume in heaven. I would assume all of us would say, well, 50 billion years from now, I'm going to be in heaven. 100%? Okay, good. But then I would challenge you this way. Did you live your life today? Did the decisions that you made today, did the actions that you took today, did the way you spent your time today, did the way you spend your money today have anything to do with where you're going to be 50 billion years from now? Or did you ever even think about that? Let me put it another way to you. One of my favorite shows that I used to enjoy was, I don't think it's on anymore, is Gilligan's Island. I'm not talking about the new reality show, Gilligan's Island. I didn't watch that because I thought it would spoil the old Gilligan's Island for me. But remember the old Gilligan's Island? How many of you saw that? How many of you know something about the old Gilligan's Island? Most of you have, are somewhat culturally literate in this area. But, <laughs> but they, they took a trip that was supposed to be short three hours. You had seven people on this boat, and they land on an island, and they stay there forever. They seem to never run out of makeup, never run out of batteries. Never run out of good clothes, and it's just an incredible fantasy, and they make jokes, and it was kind of fun. Remember who you had on the boat? You had the, the professor, you had Marianne, you had Ginger, you had uh, Gilligan, you had the, uh, and you had the captain, and I'm leaving out one, Mr. and Mrs. Howe. Yeah, the millionaire and his wife, right? 
And remember the millionaire had a big old chest full of money that he brought just because I guess he didn't have anything else to do. So he's always had cash with him. Ginger always had the evening gowns. You recall that? The Marianne always had the stuff for her pigtails. Um, the professor had his books. But nobody seemed to age. Nobody's clothes seemed to wear out. They all seemed, in the whole time that that program was on, to maintain the same roles. Thurston Howell III and his wife, Lovey, were always rich, weren't they? they? They went in, they started off being wealthy, and then the several years that the show ran, they were still wealthy. Ginger never seemed to run out of hairspray or makeup, either one. And her dresses never got old. Same with Mary Ann's. Always seemed to be well, well groomed. I just was wondering today if, if that had been a real show, and I don't know how they did the, the new reality show, but if it had been really real, those distinctions between the folks that were there probably would have been maintained for a relatively short period of time. What I mean by that is Thurston Howell III was a millionaire. He was, he was considered to be extremely wealthy because he had this suitcase full of money. But in reality, after a short period of time, and not having any food or not having any place to spend that money, the currency that was in his suitcase would have been relatively worthless, except for maybe helping to start a fire. Ginger was a movie star, and her looks were in, in, in incredible. You can see why she might have been picked for that part. And that, those looks might have been maintained for a relatively short period of time, and then Ginger's going to start looking pretty much like everybody else that's been on a deserted island and hadn't been able to bathe or fix her hair. The skipper and Gilligan had their own things. You know, I, I wonder... Marianne would have been a bit different too, but as time went on, as you got past the first year, I don't think Thurston Howell III's money would have mattered to anybody so much anymore. So it would have been a bit more level of a playing field. Ginger's looks wouldn't have been what they were anymore. You know, the skipper, he's the one who got him into that trouble in the first place. I think after four, five, ten years, they probably would have said, who puts you in charge here? Why do you get to have that role? And then if we were to go 50, 60, 70 years down the road, none of the things that any of those seven castaways really held to be valuable before they were cast away would have really meant much, would they? No. The only one, the only one I, in, in formulating this illustration today, the only one that I could think of that might have maintained some sort of status in that situation, who do you think it would have been? I think it would have been the professor, because he had the knowledge to try to help him out. But So that's where this breaks down a little bit. But if you got far enough, far enough down the road, if it was 100 years down the road, and they all seemed to survive, I don't think what they were before they landed on the island would have really mattered too much in terms of their own status symbols. Boy, we rush and rush and rush around this life with such a short-term view. Not realizing that we're still going to be alive 50 billion years from now. You know, the song says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Well, how about 50 billion years from now? When you think of it that way, 
doesn't it make you want to live your life today in such a way that it'll still have an impact 50 billion years from now? And I'm telling you, you can. Because if you live your life for Jesus Christ, there will still be an equal impact 50 billion years from now. It won't be like Thurston Howell III's suitcase full of money that becomes worthless. So many of the things that we place so much value on right now, we're not going to take with us. That's why Jesus himself said, store up treasure for yourself in heaven. He wasn't just talking about the way you spend your money. He was also talking about the way you spend your time and your energy and every part of you. Yes, we're still going to be walking, talking, if our resurrection bodies breathe, breathing and eating, 50 billion years, 100 billion, and then you can do like my kids used to do, and we'd, we'd say how much we loved each other, and I'd say, I love you 10 times. They'd say, I love you 50 times, and one of them would say, I love you a billion. And then somebody finally would come up with a brilliant answer, I love you infinity. You know, but It's going to be like that. There will never be an end to it. Progressive sanctification is so important. I urge you, as your under-shepherd, Live every day with a view toward what it's going to be like 50 billion years from now. And that doesn't mean that you have to quit whatever you're doing and enter the ministry. That is a lie. And I don't know where that got started, but it is. We have to live our lives and, and for the glory of God in whatever capacity God has put us in right now. Now, sometimes people do change profession. I did. I was called to that, but I'm not recommending it. I'm recommending that you glorify God in whatever occupation, profession, or vocation you have right now, no matter what it is. You can be a mother that raises your children to the glory of God. You can be a physician that sees his or her patients to the glory of God, or a CPA that does tax returns to the glory of God. It can be done, and that's what I exhort you to do. Romans 6 through 8, I really believe, will change your life if you would just allow it to. And would take a, a view that is long-term. You know, Japanese, I understand, maybe even longer now, they, use, they, they would hold 100-year mortgages on their houses. They took a long-term view of it. They knew that they weren't just going to live there, but somebody else was going to live there later. Well, I'm asking you to take a longer view than just 100 years. You know, sometimes we have plans, you know, one-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan for a particular organization or a savings plan, or I'm going to save for college and those kind of things. I'm asking you to take an even longer view than that. And realize you're, you're going to be here a lot longer than you think. Here, I mean in existence. Well, we must move on. What shall we say then? Takes us back to the question that, that Paul had asked earlier in the letter. Should we remain in sin or continue to live as, as if I was under the headship of Adam, that grace might increase? Absolutely not. Because Paul says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Positionally, we are no longer what we were. There's been a positional separation between the headship of Adam and myself. I've died with respect to identification with Adam and all that that entails. So it's no longer normal for me to sin. I do it and it's common. That's Romans chapter 7, but it's no longer normal. He goes on to say, Or do you not know or are you unaware or are you ignorant of the fact that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus all of us who have been have been baptized into his death. Now, some people see baptism and automatically jump to the conclusion that that's water baptism. And I don't believe that it is. I don't believe there's any water in Romans chapter 6. This is spiritual baptism, spirit baptism. Keep that in mind because it's going to mean a lot to us in about four minutes from now. 
Before our salvation, we were identified with Adam in sin. Now we're identified with Christ in obedience. When we sin, we're returning to an old identification. That's one reason why we don't feel good when we sin. It's not us when we sin. We have to fool ourselves into, into thinking that we're feeling good. We've got to take several drinks to numb it or, or shoot up with drugs to numb it to, to try to fool ourselves into thinking we're having a good time when we're really not. Because it's not who we are anymore. We've, we've been identified with Christ and with His death. We have been intimately identified, which is going to be our subject for tonight now. Note also that Paul gives no command to be baptized here. So this is not water baptism. That command was given by our Lord a long time before in Matthew chapter 28. So this is something that happens automatically once you have trusted Jesus Christ. It's a statement of fact. By grace through faith we've been so identified with Jesus Christ that we're also identified with what he did for us. Now this is where it gets great if we'll pause and think about it. We're so identified with him that we're also identified with what he did. Now, we didn't die on the cross. I think that's a misunderstanding, a misapplication, misinterpretation, perhaps, of this passage. We didn't die on the cross personally. I didn't come into existence until 1956, and the cross occurred way before that. But because of, my, because of grace and faith in, Jesus, in, in God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, enter, entering me into union with Christ... I was intimately involved with something happened almost 2,000 years before I was born. Now, this is important. We are in, identified with him and his work now that we have placed our faith in him. Then we got to Romans 6, 4, two weeks ago. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. See, there's a purpose for all this. It's not so we can sit back like frogs on a lily pad watching the world go by. There's a purpose for God saving us. Now, Jesus' burial wasn't a part of his saving work. Agreed? It was, it was something that simply proved that he had died. Similarly, his resurrection was not part of his saving work. It was proof that death could not hold him. It proved that he was who he said he was. Walking in newness of life, then, demonstrates that we are who we say we are. So he's drawing a comparison here, Paul is. In our identification with Christ, we died, we were buried, and we were resurrected. We are no longer under the headship of Adam. We died to that. We have been separated from that. Death has a finality to it. This life is over for us. At least positionally. It's over. Would that it be over experientially. Things would be so much easier for us. Through our identification with Christ, we were buried with Him. This speaks of the validation of the fact that we've died to that. Finally, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father. We've been raised from the dead. So this is the point. We simply didn't die to one headship, and then, then we're left in some sort of theological limbo. This is important. This is what I want you to take away from here tonight. We didn't just die to this. You don't get to just do that. You're in one category or another. There is no theological limbo. You're either identified with Adam or you're identified with Christ. So, we didn't die to one headship. We've been given life to live under the new head, Jesus Christ. And we were not given life to live under the headship of Adam. 
God didn't save us so we could go back and live under the old headship. This is Paul's argument in this part of Romans 6. He expects a certain behavior from us. We're his children. He's sovereign, and he has the right to do that. So as those who are saved by grace through faith, we're identified with Christ. We should live like it. That was his point in chapter 6, verse 4. Now we get to chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly shall we, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. This verse is full of truth, it's full of beauty, and it's full of inspiration. We could understand this phrase this way. We at the moment of faith were united with the death of Christ in its salvific significance. And we are now, as a result, in a state of conformity to his death. And I know that's very theological. I'll unpack it for you. Okay, well, I want to say it one more time, though. We, at the moment of faith, were united with the death of Christ in its salvific significance. And we are now, as a result, in a state of conformity to his death. We're also united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, which I take as referring to the physical resurrection of believers with Christ which is timely, since we just studied Resurrection Sunday a few days ago. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will raise us also with Jesus, key phrase, keep it in mind, with Jesus, and will present us with you. Being united with him in resurrection not only ensures a resurrection body, but also speaks of the significance of the post-salvation way of life. Now, this, there's a Greek term here that is, that is absolutely stunning if we consider it for just a moment. It's translated in verse 5, united. For if we have become united with him, at least in the New American Standard, that's the way it's translated. It's used only here in the New Testament. It's, it's the Greek word sumphatos. It means pertaining to being closely associated in a similar experience. It, but it means literally to be grown together with someone or something. Paul stresses here by using this term, by saying that we have been grown together with Christ. We've been intertwined with Him. We've been placed into union with Him. Paul stresses here the personal nature of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are intimately united with the second person of the Trinity. Intimately united. We're no longer under the headship of Adam, but again, please note, having been rescued out of the headship of Adam, we are not left without a home. We are now under the headship of Christ, but it is more than just that. It's more than just positional. It's also personal. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and our non-meritorious acceptance of that work, we have a personal relationship with the infinite personal God of the universe. Stop and let that sink in. We have a personal relationship, an intimate personal relationship with the infinite personal God of the universe. When the reality of what Paul is saying here in this verse, verse 5, when it finally sets in, Your life, my life, will never be the same. We are not stepchildren. We are not unwanted, homeless people. 
We are intimately united with Him. We're part of His family. We're in union with Him. We have been grown together with Him. Think for a minute what that means. This is not just nobody. This is a very special somebody that we have been intimately united with. Because we've never seen God in the sense that the Scriptures speak of, we have a tendency, I believe, to depersonalize our relationship with Him. And what I believe to be an attempt to accommodate our finite thinking to infinite concepts, we sometimes mechanize our interaction with God. In fact, one commentator on Romans said that the most important concept in Romans chapter 6 is, quote, mechanics, end quote. I think he misses the point entirely. Boosbury Chafer put it this way, speaking of our relationship with God, we are always dealing with our Father. Too often the walk in the Spirit is thought to be a mechanical thing. We are not dealing with a machine. We are dealing with the most loving and tender-hearted Father in all the universe. It's personal. It's not as though Jesus Christ was here totally other than us. And he's decided to save us, but still not have a a real relationship to us. It almost has a deistic feel when we depersonalize our relationship with God. At least that's the way I see it. Now, to add to the fact that we have a personal relationship with God, Paul strengthens it by, by saying we've become united with him, or we've grown together with him, if you would prefer. When When we've grown together with the very Son of God we should begin to appreciate the wonder of this revelation. There are some places that I, I can't go just on my own. Several years ago, believe it or not, Don Tippett called me up on one Saturday morning before the, it's about this time of year and asked me if I would come down and be a celebrity judge at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo Barbecue Cook-Off. I said, well, that'd be great, except for uh, I'm not a celebrity and neither are you. And he said, well, that's okay. They want us to come down. The two, two people that were celebrities dropped out, so they want us to come down and to do it. I said, if it's free barbecue, then I'll come down. <laughs> well, the barbecue judging didn't actually start until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But earlier in the day, we were supposed to be there around noon, we, we were assigned a liaison a young lady, to take us around to all the different booths and meet all the barbecue cook-off teams. And there were people that were part of those barbecue cook-off teams that you would recognize their names, football players and certainly some businessmen. And they all had a very elaborate setup. I don't know how it is now, but back then you couldn't get in there unless you, you were invited back into that section of the rodeo. So Don and myself and, and this uh, liaison went back through and she would, she would walk through the door and, and everybody would kind of look around at, at Don and I. It's like, uh, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? Never forget, I'll tell you one of them was Earl Campbell. Remember Earl Campbell, the football player? He, had a, he was selling link sausage, so he had a barbecue thing there. I never, he looked up at me like, you're going to come in here and eat this barbecue for free? I don't think so. Because you know, he didn't recognize me from anybody. And I never will forget, because I, actually I had wandered in in front of the other two. Because I wanted to meet him. I thought it would be a pretty neat thing to, to meet Earl Campbell. He's one of my football heroes. And when he gave me that look immediately, I stopped and I said, well, I'm, I'm with her. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's okay, then we'll come on in. 
And she said, well, they're celebrity judges. And he looks and said, well, they're really not celebrities, but they had to fill in for the celebrity judges. And then we would go to the next booth. And the same thing was repeated over and over and over again with different degrees of rudeness on the part of the people that were, <laughs> we were visiting. At one point, she, the, the, the liaison said, you know, these people are going to be judging your barbecue. They said, I don't care. It wasn't about winning. It was about the publicity. But the point is, I could get in only because I was with her. Do you realize you can open your thoughts to the Father tonight and say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Hopefully not that rote, memorized prayer. But you can lift your voice to the Father and make your request known because you're with him. You realize that one of these days, you're going to depart from this earth sooner or later. And I don't believe that Peter's going to be standing at any pearly gates. But the reason that you're going to enter into heaven is because you're with him. The reason you have eternal life right now is because you're with him. The reason that you can fail and get up again and again and again, you can confess and be restored, you can confess and be restored, is because we're with him. My dear friends, this is huge. The Christian life is not some sort of mechanical, deep, impersonal interaction. It is a personal relationship with the very God of the universe. The reason I can have eternal security, the reason I can have assurance of my salvation is because I'm with him. I can't think of any other place I'd want to be. I never want to be outside his fellowship. Now, there's, there's times when he may not be real happy with me, so I might have lost that close, intimate, personal fellowship we talk about sometimes, but you're never going to lose this intertwining. This, this thing that's been grown together, you and him, it's permanent. You'll never lose it. So when Paul says, for if we have become, and we have, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, if, if we become grown together with him in the likeness of his death, now get the second phrase. Certainly we shall be, and then I think it's fair to insert the verb because it's not there. We shall become like we will, we shall become united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. You want to know one of the reasons why we say that we have a resurrection body at least similar to Jesus Christ because we've been grown together with Him. It is a sure thing that we have eternal life right now. It's a sure thing that you're going to have a resurrection body that you're going to live in forever. It's a sure thing you're going to be alive 50 billion years from now. By means of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, every believer is identified intimately with Jesus Christ. And as a result of that union, we share in the relationship of the Father and of the Son. I know how much you love your kids and or your parents, or your brothers, or your sisters. I know how much I do. Your family, your wife, your husband. You know how much that is? It's a lot, isn't it? It doesn't even come close to matching the love that the Father has for the Son. And guess what? You have been intimately united. You have been grown together with someone that the Father has loved from all eternity with a perfect love that has never varied one bit. We're so wealthy right now. We don't need a trunk, trunk load full of money on some sort of deserted, deserted island to feel like we have worth. We have got incredible worth right now because we've been grown together with Jesus Christ. And as we'll see as this passage unfolds, 
Paul is going to exhort us now to live like we know that. Wouldn't it be a little easier to face the problems of life knowing that we've been grown together with the second person of the Trinity? Omnipotent God, the very creator of the universe. Don't you think it would be a little easier to face sickness if we knew that we've been grown together with the person that created this body in the first place? Death, if we've been grown together with the person who died and he's the only one that's ever come back not to die. Oh, this is huge. And I don't think once we grasp it, and I'd, I'd like to give you from now till next week to think about it because our time's up, but once we really grasp this, I don't think we'll ever be the same. 